Hey everybody, and welcome to Context Clues, where this week I'm going to give you some clips from previous episodes to get you ready for our Halloween special called Haunted Dolls. We shuffled through a lot of ideas for this, the spookiest of seasons, but none of them felt like they were working. So we decided to stop the podcast presses and focus on what we have always done best here, looking at the possible demonic possession of all the things that American children love and cherish. Whether you come across one in the low-lit corners of a musty antique shop, or the chaotic spread of a local yard sale, or even a toy store featuring cutting-edge technology, wherever there is a doll, there is likely a creepy feeling to go along with it. And, if we're lucky, a sensational, satanic backstory that makes it all the more authentic. From Annabelle to Robert the Doll, from ventriloquist dummies to voodoo puppets to baby dolls that move and talk by themselves. These haunted humanoids have become popular enough in pop culture to spawn an entire underground market for adults. For next week's episode, we'll explore our creepiest dolls throughout the American ages and see how the uncanny enchantment of these playthings has been creeping us out for centuries. Our first clip is actually not a clip at all, but rather an entire mini-episode focused on what certainly has to be the most haunted toy of my generation. That's right, the half-alien, half-guinea-pig, Tiger Electronics smash-hit play pal, Furby. In the 1990s, Freaky urban legends and sensational stories about these furry round robots abounded, with their plastic eyelashed eyes and small yellow beaks that clacked open and closed. Furbies had their own weird language, and we were all told that they would also learn more English words the more we played with them. But then kids started reporting these dolls, saying strange things that weren't a part of the little booklet of furbish terms. And they also started reporting Furbies turning on in the middle of the night, moving around their rooms, and returning to their nightstands after being thrown fearfully into the trash. So now, here is our mini-episode that looks at the phenomenon of Furby, and the fearful oval shadow it cast across the bedrooms of children in the 1990s. This is American Hysteria's Aftershock, where I share with you a story that didn't make it into the main episode. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and today we're talking about... Furby. Hey, 
Since we are all hella old, Furbies are now found most often on the smooth wooden shelves of haunted antique stores, their eyes open or closed into eternity, batteryless, but nonetheless, I assume, awakening in the middle of the night to garble out a few demonic words. From the alleged government experiment arcade game Polybius to the Bush-era rumors that Saddam Hussein was crafting weapons of mass destruction out of PlayStation 2 consoles, urban legends have always abounded about children's toys and games. Wherever kids are having fun, there are always wild rumors or conspiracy theories to go along with them, but no toy has attracted quite as many urban legends and conspiracy theories as that big-eyed, thick-eyelashed, yellow-beaked robot gremlin known, of course, as Furby. Most millennials either had a Furby or at least knew someone who did, likely throwing it out a window at some point or cooking it in a microwave, only to have it reappear on the desk in your room. Furby emerged as one of the first computerized robot toys, before the popular and endless supply of robot dogs I certainly had in the very beginning of the 2000s, such as Poochie, iSybe, and the iDog, all deeply disappointing technology. When Furby debuted in 1998, it seemed to be unprecedented in its level of artificial intelligence, and people went absolutely nuts, with stores selling out all over the country. Furby was marketed as a toy that actually learned from its owner. When you first bought a Furby, it would only speak in this language known as Furbish, a gibberish, toddler-like language. However, after a while, it would slowly start to say words in English, as if it were a real child learning to speak from its parent. But that was all part of the illusion. While millions enjoyed teaching their Furbies to speak, few actually understood that Furby was not learning from you. All Furby toys from the original line did not learn English. They were simply programmed to transition from Furbish to English over a predetermined amount of time. But as Furby was the first of its kind, it inevitably led to a misunderstanding on the part of the consumer. People assumed that because it apparently learned to speak from you, it must have a microphone to listen with, right? And if it had a microphone, who's to say it's not recording everything we're saying? Tiger Electronics, the company behind Furby, had to eventually issue a statement confirming that no, their colorful furry robot toy for children was not spying on people. While the original Furby did have a microphone, it was only a sensor that could detect if someone was speaking to the Furby, but not what they said. That way, Furby could seemingly respond to what you were saying, though its programming only knew that you were speaking, not the content of what you were saying. Furby had no capability to hear, let alone record or even understand what children were saying. So if you remember all those parents claiming that Furby was teaching their kids bad words, or if you remember being a kid trying to teach your Furby bad words, well, unfortunately, none of it was true. This bombshell revelation from Tiger Electronics that Furby wasn't a spy only came about after Furby-related paranoia had reached the highest offices of the American Intelligence Network, the National Security Agency. Amidst the Furby craze in 1999, the NSA offices at Fort Meade, North Dakota, actually banned Furby toys from the premises in a memo that read, quote, Personally owned photographic video and audio recording equipment are prohibited items. This includes toys such as Furbies with built-in recorders that repeat the audio with synthesized sound 
found to mimic the original. Conspiracy theories about Furby had also reached the naval shipyards at Norfolk, Virginia, where an official email sent to personnel stated that Furby, quote, is considered a recording device and as such is not allowed without the commander's approval. If you see one, you are to take proper action, seize it and its owner. This is a security violation. The toy shall be held as evidence on a chain of custody form. Though the myths were quickly dispelled that Furby was recording conversations, it would not be the last time that rumors would emerge about the toy. Another feature of Furby was if you placed them near each other, they would have a conversation. Within its first year of release, hospitals and airplanes were added to the list of places that Furby was banned from, this time because of the suspicion that the computerized toy gave off electromagnetic waves. Hospitals feared that Furby could electronically interfere with their medical equipment, and the Federal Aviation Administration recommended that Furby toys not be allowed on airliners for the risk of interfering with the navigational equipment needed for takeoffs and landings. Again, Tiger Electronics had to respond, with their spokeswoman, Lana Simon, adding that their staff got a big laugh out of the FAA's statement. Like the urban legends of the Furby recording device, the claims of hospitals and the FAA came from a basic misunderstanding of the toy's technology. While the original Furby did have a function that enabled it to sense when another Furby was around and talk to it, the function used only infrared technology, the same kind in remote controls. Furby was not capable of shutting down life support systems or sabotaging aircraft landings. Despite these slanderous allegations against Furby, Tiger Electronics laughed all the way to the bank with 27 million toys sold in a year. The company's president, Robert Schiffman, joked about the claims in 1999, saying, quote, I've been told that we're developing a Furby that can drive a car in the year 2000. We've also been told that the current Furby has the technology to launch the space shuttle. We have one woman who is absolutely insistent that her Furby sings Italian operas. What's that? Me up. It's my Furby. Furby loves you lavender. Tickle me. While adult panic about Furby came and went, the robotic toy would go on to be the stuff of nightmares for a generation of children who had their own experiences that led them to believe that their toy didn't just have a mind of its own, it was possessed. Many of these children, now grown up, recently recounted their Furby experiences on a Reddit thread. While countless users reported their Furby waking up unprompted in the middle of the night, others had even stranger experiences with the toy, including Furby heating up and chanting in a high-pitched tone, Furby suddenly acquiring a foreign language, Furby operating without batteries, Furby's demanding, feed me, in a low-pitched, demonic-sounding voice, Furby's continuing to function despite attempts to destroy them, even with fire, and Furby's coming back to life after years of sitting idly on a shelf. Most of these experiences, and I bet if you had a Furby, you can relate to at least one of them, can be easily explained. Just like the panics around Furby spying on you or interfering with technology, these experiences can be attributed to the simple fact that Furby was new and innovative, the first of its kind in many ways. And because of that, Furby was prone to malfunctions, including battery issues and unwarranted factory resets that resulted in Furby speaking in a different language. It should also be considered that Furby didn't even have an off switch until a year after its initial release, following complaints from annoyed parents that the Furby would begin speaking in the middle of the night. But many of the Reddit posters also shared something in common. 
they didn't even want a Furby to begin with. While many kids found Furby to be fun and adorable, many also found them to be creepy and off-putting. I know I did and still do. Despite being scared of it, many of us kids forced ourselves to play with Furby out of guilt to appease our enthusiastic parents who believed they were providing us the most innovative in children's technology. Other kids tried to destroy and get rid of it, and some of the Reddit posters described how no matter how hard they tried to get rid of their Furby, no matter how many times they tossed it outside or tossed it in the garbage, it would always turn back up on a shelf or on top of their dresser, staring and blinking at them, asking to be fed. Of course, in hindsight, what was initially thought of as a possessed Furby returning to torment its owner was likely parents finding the Furby and returning it to the kid's room. I certainly was never able to muster anything close to love for my Furby, now a time-honored member of the Uncanny Valley that we talked about in our Season 1 episode on Phantom Clowns. But no matter how much evidence is shown to the contrary, I know in my heart of hearts it was an early tool of the satanic Illuminati, spying on innocent middle-class Americans, whose lives were obviously incredibly interesting to the U.S. government, possessing the next generation, leading us toward the unspeakable evil that we would soon embody. Even if we escaped its indoctrination, many of us 90s kids are still haunted by its clacking animatronic eyes, its beak mouth clacking open too, growing from an innocent little animal to what appeared to be a sentient being, one we could project our fears onto until it grew up, just like us, adults now too, old enough, finally, to tell urban legends about ourselves. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. If you've been listening to our show for a little while, you will, of course, be familiar with the satanic panic of the 1980s, in which parents, politicians, and religious leaders were up in arms about demonic entertainment in the form of music, movies, and toys. Most famously, a little hysteria ensued around the game Dungeons and Dragons, with no small number of adults across America convinced that this role-playing game was all about summoning Satan and possessing teenagers to do his bidding. But this moral panic was not limited to fantasy gaming, certainly not, and soon Toys of all stripes began catching the ire of fundamentalists who peddled their panic across Christian programs and daytime TV talk shows. So here's a little segment on Satanic Toys from our episode called Satanic Panic Part One. I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they'd yeah. take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces. Dungeons & Dragons was the first true tabletop role-playing game, allowing players to create their own fantasy personas and situations to go on different adventures based on the roll of a dice. It's like a never-ending choose-your-own-adventure in the form of a board game with the general goal of growing more powerful, but also of simply coming up with a good story. D&D's Satanic Ties first came under scrutiny in 1979 when 16-year-old computer science prodigy James Dallas Egbert III went missing from his Michigan State dorm room. When the police search fell short, his family hired private investigator William Deere. After studying James's suicide note and a corkboard of strange clues found in his dorm room, William Deere made the claim that James may have been attempting to play a real-life version of D&D in the steam tunnels under the school and was killed down there by accident. And James's parents accepted the theory publicly, which gave rise to new fundamentalist theories, the most popular being that D&D's Dungeon Master Guide contained instructions for carrying out a ritual sacrifice to Satan and that the bright young James had fallen prey. When he was found alive several weeks later, it turned out that James had indeed spent time in the steam tunnels under the school, but it had nothing to do with D&D. He had gone down there with the purpose of ending his life by overdosing on sleeping pills. 
When he awoke after 24 hours, disoriented but still alive, he hid out at an older man's house in New Orleans for the remainder of the month he was missing. Soon, William Deere would get to know the boy he had been searching for personally, as he worked on a book about the case, trying to dispel some of the satanic rumors he had accidentally started. It turned out that James had been suffering from serious depression and drug abuse, buckling under academic pressure from his parents, as well as serious loneliness. James was also very likely gay, and William Deere believed his parents cleaved so desperately to the D&D narrative so that they could avoid the topic of his sexuality being leaked to the media. And then, two years later, another player, one named Irving Lee Poling, shot himself in the chest. Understandably devastated and looking to find something to blame for the horrible tragedy, Irving's mother, Patricia Poling, made the claim that Irving's principal cursed her son using D&D, and that countless other teen suicides could be linked to the game. A devout Christian, already aware of D&D's demonic reputation, Patricia founded BAD, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. BAD defined D&D this way. A fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and many other teachings. Like televangelists, Patricia believed that this role-playing game was just a cover and what D&D really contained were covert instructions for rituals in which susceptible teens would be hypnotized into out-of-control sodomy-filled sex parties presided over by Satan himself. And if the devil could use a board game to possess teens, couldn't he do similar things to kids? That was the question on one man's mind, while deep into a 14-day fast that was requested directly by Jesus Christ himself. Devout Christian Phil Phillips wandered aimlessly into an early 80s toy store and was struck by a frightening image, a plastic figurine holding an occult symbol in its hand. Pale-faced, he approached the register, purchased the toy, and then staggered out in what I can only imagine was a hunger-induced stupor, clutching the action figure in his clammy palm, unsure of why he had bought it. By his own account, he tossed the toy in his back seat and all but forgot about it, until God spoke to him a few days later, telling him about how the toy industry controls the youth with occult magic. This sparked Phil to undertake an intensive investigation into popular toys and the Saturday morning cartoons that were used to sell them, shows like He-Man and Thundercats, Care Bears and Rainbow Bright. Here's a mashup of Phil talking to fundamentalist talk show host Gary Greenwald in 1984. A little boy was seen out in the parking lot with He-Man in his hand, running around in circles saying, He-Man has more power than Jesus. The Care Bears use the Care Bear Stare, which is a power beam coming from the center of their stomach. What I'm seeing in Care Bears, it's almost like they're setting up their own religion. This is Tila. They call her the warrior goddess, and this young lady is involved in witchcraft, and you'll notice that she's a very voluptuous-looking thing, and they wear very tightly clad clothes and, and sometimes even negligee. Skeletor, the master of the universe. But there are some things about Smurfs that we need to look at. You know what happens to you when you die? You turn blue and your lips turn black. And Rainbow Bride is a very humanistic type toy. It displays many humanistic and new age 
symbols within it. It's a half man, half horse. He had horns coming out the side of his head who kidnapped uh, three of the ponies, and he's going to transform them to pull his chariot of darkness. If there were to be any supernatural sibling to the haunted doll, I believe that it would have to be the Phantom Clown. Catching headlines first in the 1980s and then again in 2016, the panic around potentially murderous, potentially paranormal clowns calling children into their vans with candy or into the woods with money spread across the country with letters sent home from school and local news reports galore. Coming at the height of the stranger danger and the satanic panics, the first wave of phantom clowns came not long after American serial child killer John Wayne Gacy Jr. was arrested and the media began printing an image of him dressed as a birthday clown. Stephen King's terrifying book, it and the 1990 miniseries that followed starring Tim Curry acted as a kind of final nail in the coffin of the happy American clown that not long before had prompted children to sign up for waiting lists 10 years long to see their beloved Bozo, who now appears absolutely terrifying in retrospect. It's easy to believe that the cute clown was killed by a gruesome pop culture process, and that is certainly partially true. But at the same time, clowns have never really been a simple delight of the innocent masses of the world's children. In fact, there may very well be biological reasons we find these humanoids to be so creepy, reasons that may help illuminate why we feel a similar way about particular kinds of dolls. So now here's a section from our episode called Phantom Clowns. Do you know that weird feeling you get when you're around things like dolls or mannequins or wax figures or animatronics on Disneyland rides, computer animated human beings that just look a little off? They inspire in us this really particular, strange feeling. One aesthetics theory, called the Uncanny Valley, says that we are made uncomfortable by human forms that are not quite human a feeling known as creepiness or sometimes eeriness and its subsequent sense of revulsion. The clown, with its bizarre makeup that exaggerates the features, making them human but not quite, might help explain why they so easily became our modern monsters. We simply cannot read the face of a robot or doll or animatron or clown the way we might read a human face we encounter, and faces more than anything else give us the vital information by which to judge a human as a friend or a threat. There are many other theories attached to the uncanny valley that attempt to explain why, exactly, we have such a revulsion to these types of humanoids. Some theorists think that we have a natural revulsion to humans that appear slightly off because they might be carrying a disease, as someone infected with rabies might look. 
Others think these figures may resemble dead bodies, something else we instinctually want to avoid to stay healthy. Whatever the reason, the subsequent feeling that we get from this uncanny valley is not quite fear, but close. We call it being creeped out, getting the chills, having the hair on the backs of our necks stand up. A study out of Illinois' Knox College by professor of psychology Frank McAndrew and graduate student Sarah Koenig was launched in 2013 to better understand this unexplored feeling. They asked 1,300 participants, what is creepy? Those who participated in the studies talked about certain types of behavior, like standing too close or asking too many personal questions, especially about sex, or having an unkept appearance or an odd odor. Funeral home director and taxidermist, as well as sex shop owner, were commonly named as the creepiest jobs. The researchers believed that these answers proved what they hypothesized, that creepiness itself is related to those that break social norms. Social norms like avoiding publicly the topics of death and sex. At the top of the list of creepiest jobs was none other than the professional clown, a character for whom breaking social norms is kind of an M.O. Researchers noticed that our brains seem to approach creepy things in two conflicting ways. In times of fear, when there's a clear threat, we automatically react. We might run or fight or yell for help or take some kind of action, but being creeped out isn't the same thing as being purely afraid. A creepy threat is ambiguous. We can't tell if we are in real danger or not. And so, at the same time, another important instinct presents itself, one more in line with social protection than physical protection. Human beings are naturally averse to breaking social norms because, for our safety, we need to get along with the group in which we live. Judging a threat incorrectly and acting on it can get us into trouble, can cause hurt or even anger, a potential that encourages us to also protect ourselves in a different way by not overreacting, by staying within the same set of unspoken social codes. Simply put, we don't want to be rude because of what that rudeness can do to the dynamics of our social circle. And so, our brains fight with themselves, one part wanting to flee from or fight a threat, the other not wanting to break an important social code, which can create a kind of error message in your head. And so, we settle on reconnaissance. Our senses heighten subconsciously and we become hypervigilant, gathering more information about this potential threat. This kind of helps me understand why I was so distracted as a kid at McDonald's. I had identified a possible threat in the Ronald McDonald statue, but also knew it wasn't socially appropriate to fight or flee from a statue, so my brain just sort of hyper-focused on the clown for the duration of my playtime. Maybe it's also why I was so obsessed with that image of Pennywise on the VHS at the video store, going back again and again to assess the ambiguous threat. In times of high cultural stress, horror movies like It often soar in popularity. This is likely because they help us vent feelings of anxiety and fear, of the scariness and creepiness of the real world in a controlled way. This type of safe horror is a kind of play acting in which we can examine our fear while knowing that we're not in real danger. And with the mega success of the 2018 remake of It, it's clear that we are venting some current real-world anxiety in the safe haven of freaky make-believe.
Perhaps that can also help explain the recent clown epidemic that made headlines for several months of 2016. The threat was initially sparked by a low-budget horror director named Adam Krauss out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, who hired a creepy clown to stand in the street holding black balloons as part of a viral marketing ploy for a new short film. Numerous people called the police on this creepy clown, despite the fact that the clown was on public property and was doing nothing illegal. With thousands and thousands of shares of this social media post about this particular clown, the whole nation, much quicker than in 1981, caught fire with chorophobia. Amy, the sheriff's office has been working for over a week now to try and substantiate those claims that there were clowns in those woods, and so far they haven't been able to. One of them has all white face with black stars on around his eyes, and then one of them has a clown costume on and has red hair. Clowns hidden through the trees. The next reports follow the 1981 template with a group of kids in Greenville, South Carolina, saying that a clown was trying to lure them into the woods, this time with large amounts of cash. These clowns allegedly flashed green lasers at them and came to their door later in the night rattling chains and banging on their windows. A mother from the apartments also reported a large clown with a blinking nose standing under a light near the dumpster. The children told the police that they believed the clowns lived in an abandoned house near a pond at the end of a trail through the woods. The police searched the property and found nothing clown-related or threatening at all. Another mother would soon call 911 to report a group of clowns with fake knives who jumped out of abandoned houses and bushes and chased her children from a bus stop. In Redding, Ohio, a teenager was arrested after making threats online, posing as an evil clown. Another woman told police that while smoking on her porch at 4 a.m., a man wearing a striped outfit, a red wig, and a clown mask walked up to her, grabbed her by the throat, and said, I should just kill you now. And then, I quote, Some students and teachers are going to wish they were never born at the junior and senior high school today. Students were locked down as teens used the scare to get out of class by calling in fake threats from killer clowns, leading to actual arrests. 500 college students at Penn State went on an actual clown hunt, following claims that an evil clown had been spotted on campus. A mother and daughter called the police on a 12-year-old boy who turned out to have autism, who was looking to surprise his mom with his new Pennywise costume. Love you, kid. The character of Ronald McDonald was put on hiatus from all community events. Clowns were pulled from parades and haunted houses. Sightings were reported in at least 32 states, with police and locals all over the country searching the woods for clowns, never finding any true threatening individuals. Instead, arresting and charging adults and teens all over for making false reports of killer clowns. Regardless, the news and social media continued to report on the phantoms as if they were a true threat to national security. A reporter actually asked White House spokesman John Ernest for President Obama's opinion on the killer clowns. Quote, I don't know that the president has been briefed on this particular situation. Obviously, this is a situation that law enforcement is taking quite seriously. A police lieutenant in Palm Bay, Florida, said in a statement that, quote, The problem is that someone dressed like a clown could scare someone, and there's a possibility that someone could get shot. A little girl in Athens, Georgia, was arrested for bringing a knife to school to fight off supposed clowns. In Reading, Pennsylvania, a 16-year-old was actually stabbed to death while he was in possession of a clown mask by an older man who may have been scared by him. 
A couple men from that South Carolina apartment building we talked about, who had been told by the kids about mysterious clowns in the woods, had also fired their guns at random into the trees when they heard noises they could not explain. What is your emergency? Um, I, there was a clown, there's a clown in my woods inside my house. A what? A clown. Okay. He was just standing there. Did he say anything or do anything? No, he was just sitting there watching me. Okay. Because I was taking my dog potty, and I kept seeing something over there, and I looked over, and I seen him, and I looked back, and I kind of had to reassure myself, and I looked back over there, and he moved over some more, and sure enough, it was a clown. Just like the fear of satanic cults that we talked about over the last couple episodes, phantom clown sightings do pop up from time to time. But it's when these stories catch on that we need to pay attention to the current climate in which the panic was able to go viral. Many of the clown sightings were just annoying teenagers trying to film something for YouTube, or kids looking for attention by sharing urban legends and then freaking their parents out. But that's not the part that matters. Let's go back for a second to that uncanny valley. The uncanny valley effect is still largely a mystery, but some researchers wonder if it could have to do with empathy, or rather, the lack thereof. They wonder if the problem with animatronics and dolls and these computerized characters and wax figures and clowns is that they give off the impression of being soulless, of having no ability to empathize, and therefore being a possible threat to our well-being because we simply don't know if they care if we live or die. In the case of our most dramatic killer clown archetype, they might even laugh at our demise. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Context Clues. And please join us next week for our Halloween special called Haunted Dolls. It's going to be a real romp. In the meantime, you can listen to the entirety of the Satanic Panic series and our episode on Phantom Clowns. And if you want even more content, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get episodes ad-free and early, as well as bonus episodes and live streams as well. Until next time, friends, have a haunted week. <laughs>